Hello and welcome to Fat Free Film, the indie film podcast. I'm Joel Marshall. And I'm Kamala Lopez Dawson, and we have the great excitement and pleasure to be sitting here with Karen Black, an artist, uh, an actress, a composer, a producer, a writer, um, and, you know, a true artist in that everything she does in her life is about creating things. So thank you so much for being on the show. Absolutely my pleasure. I hope I can do something well and help and and I'm having a good time with you. Thank We're you here on much. Valentine's Day yes, and in Karen's who, home. What better day to be with Karen because of all the things that um, that Karen has done, you always see a great deal of love coming through. Well, thank you very much. When I was first in Hollywood, um, I would do things for television, and I was distressed by the fact that I always seemed kind of sweet. I could see a kind of a sweetness. So I've actually had to um, sort of te- technique or skill myself out of that, so that I don't, so that I don't always have heart. And I'm glad you see it, because I do think that on screen, affinity is the strongest. Um, quality or the, the most it has the most impact I mean I mean people tend to think you know killing people or dying or, sh- or blood and all that has a lot of impact but if you see someone looking with love great love um, at another human it's, it's, it's tremendous impact do you think that that affinity extends to the audience who will be watching the film I really feel very close to an audience and I feel uh, I guess I would feel loving. You know, you're you're very open if you're doing it right, um, and you're willing, utterly willing, for people to see right inside of you, inside of your mind, inside of your um, pain, and inside of any kind of loss that you bring to the moment or to the role. You're you're very open to that, and and just, it's a conscious um, communication that you want it that you want to communicate that, and you want to share. So there's a tremendous affinity between myself and, I would say, an audience. That's, I guess, why I don't understand auditions, because there's no audience. Mm. I don't know what I'm doing. I mean, what on earth are you doing? What you're supposed to be doing is communicating to an audience, you know, what the, what the author has written. And that's a, um, that, that has a, a thrill of simplicity to it. And it absolutely gets you on the path or the determinism that's correct. You know, and that's what you're alive to do. But I think auditioning is strange because I don't understand what it's for. I can't get the purpose of it. You know, have you, impress people and what? Have you found that uh, different directors audition in different ways and are some ways more effective, perhaps? I haven't auditioned in a long time, but I'll tell you that George Slizer, who did The Vanishing, and who's still a great friend and a great, great fellow, all full of fire. He's just fiery. He's a great man. I did two more movies with him. When he auditioned me, he would kind of smile and have me do it completely differently. Oh, now do it as if, you know, you're sinking into the mud. Okay, now do it as if you're in love with me. He would just do that. and he That was, I'd never had that happen before or since. I thought that was pretty marvelous. And John Schlesinger, I guess, um, he would just have you read it. Um, and then he would bring in, once I got the party, he brought in all these other actors and had me sit with him and tell him what I thought of them. I think that's a very interesting point about auditioning because I almost think that auditioning 
is a different job than acting. And I think to a certain degree, there are actors that work a lot because sometimes you'll you'll look at television or you'll go to the movies and you'll go, but why I don't understand why that person works so much because there are so many people that I feel that are more talented than mm -hmm. that person. Yes. But there are a group of actors that audition extremely well. Mm -hmm. And I think that um, if you can possibly develop the ability to do that, um, it, it will be helpful. Well, I, I wouldn't know what to say to anyone about that. I just feel that your set of responsibilities is very different. If you go to an audition, your responsibility is to get the part and to make yourself look to others as though they, you're something they would want. There's a certain kind of retro, you know, it's like back and forth kind of a thing. See, I, when I act, I just it's just one flow out, but that's another story. But when you're in a movie, you're responsible for the movie. You can, you're responsible for how that movie goes, if it's good, the whole thing. And some people just have that. They just can be responsible about making a movie work. Um, you know, Tom Hanks, uh, all, all kinds of movie stars. People don't realize what they're doing. They're doing an incredible job of making the movie itself good. And they know they're doing it. And they're doing it on purpose. But when you're auditioning, you don't have that responsibility. And you can't tell watching a person audition whether or not they're ever going to take that responsibility. <clears throat> so you can really make some mistakes. You know, you can... I remember being in a movie once on Woodby Island and going past, they were shooting something on a porch, and I thought, you know, I bet those guys were great at the audition. You know what I mean? They were doing this kind of emotional kind of thing on the porch. But I thought, I don't know if this is what the movie is supposed to be about. I think um, usually the way people look at that is that it's the director's responsibility to maintain sort of an overarching what they call vision of all the strings and all the plot lines and all the pieces of the puzzle. And I think most actors take responsibility solely for their character. Oh, I don't agree. Uh, in either case. Um, it's like if I hired a maid and then she came over and wanted me to show her how to vacuum. The maid should know how to do the job. That's what she's hired to do. And when you hire an actor, he should do the job no matter what, he does it all himself. He figures it all out himself. I think often when you watch a movie, you think, wow, I wonder how that director ever got that performance out of it. No, she did it, or he did it. The director didn't do it. The director was watching. Um, and then there's very little that they can really, they can't make you um, just create whatever effect you want. When, you, when you're acting, you have to be the audience, and most actors... See, I think actors do things they don't know they're doing, one of which is they are responsible for the, for the movie. If they're good, they're responsible for the whole of the movie and what, what their part uh, in the whole is, and, and holding that up and making that happen. But as well, what actors do is they're they being the audience to the, uh, to the extent that they're very accurate with what effect they're creating. Um, if, if I want a, 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 the audience to think I'm stupid, you can't just sort of be stupid. Actors do this and don't know they're doing it. They're sort of like there's a part of them that's watching themselves and bringing what their a, uh, actions and, and gestures and thought and the whole um, sculpture that they're being 
to the mark, to the mark of when this is viewed, this is how it will appear or seem to the viewer. That doesn't mean that they're not utterly spontaneous. They're at the same time completely spontaneous. And most good actors don't really quite know what they're going to do next. They really, and, and you forget what the other guy's line is going to be. So you really can be in the moment. At the same time, you have a kind of strange overview where you really can have an audience receive exactly the concept that you want them to receive. And how accurate you are with that is how good you are. And how accurate any artist is with creating the effect that they intended, you know, if that's congruent, then they're a good artist. You know, if, if somebody wrote a, a movie once that I thought was so foolish, he was cutting sausages, or she was, and you were supposed to think of a penis or something. And I, mean, I thought that was funny. Uh, and it <clears throat> was not a comedy. So when he was writing, he had some kind of additive, you know, symbolism or something, you know what I mean? And it wasn't in the script and it would never be seen that way by the audience. So he was, he was utterly inaccurate and not a good artist, would be an example. Mm. But I want to talk about um, directors and so forth. And I don't think directors know how, how open other artists are. I think they, they assume that they're off on some island and, and you can't touch them and they're inapproachable, unapproachable, sorry. And I think that, strangely enough, sometimes the more important a person is, the more approachable they are. I wrote a little card to Jeffrey Katzenberg, mm -hmm. you know, arguably the most important person in, in this town, mm -hmm. saying, gosh, if you want to know how to write a screenplay, just watch Shrek. Perfect. You know, the, the climax, the denouement, the, the problem, the problem, so, I mean, everything is right there. Just watch it, and you'll know how to write a screenplay. And he wrote me back a wonderful card. He doesn't have time to write me a card, you know, a personally signed card. It's just, it's just true that people are much more approachable than most people making a movie think. Because I, for one, really want to help and assist and further the aims of, of all artists this is one of the ways that I live. Um, and somehow someone, for example, two years ago had a, got my email, and they said they were making a movie called Read You Like a Book, and we'd like maybe to do this part. I said, I don't want to do that part. What about this part? I said, no, I don't, I don't want to. Finally, he gave me one of the leads, you know, because I thought she was too young. But he said, oh, it doesn't matter. Old she, she's just a nice lady, works in a library. And um, I think there are a lot of directors out there who think, that I couldn't be approached, or that a lot of actresses could not be approached. And they can be. You just have to just try. And then the other advice I would give is... But how do you try? Because when, when I've tried to get a hold of actors or actresses um, that I don't know personally or know somebody that knows, and I try calling these agencies, it's... Um, I, in fact, I have a very interesting story. Todd Field, who and is a wonderful actor, he also directed In the Bedroom and just now directed Little Children. But I knew him as an actor. I had seen his work as an actor, and when I was directing a short film, I had in my mind, I want this Todd Field. So I wrote a long letter about, you know, how I liked his work. I got a phone call from him, livid, apologetic, to the point of just he felt awful. Mm. And he said, you know, I never received this letter until now, and... 
I am so, so sorry. And, and then he said, by the way, I'm directing a little film, my first feature, which turned out to be in the bedroom. Oh, um, and he never got it. And, and I assumed, of course, that he didn't want to do it. So this is the kind of thing that filmmakers run into all the time. The gatekeepers of the actors that have their own ego at stake, or I really don't know what the, or they don't want them doing small films because their percentage won't be, you know, they'd rather have them do something where they're going to get more money or something like that. So mm -hmm. it, there should be some other system. There should be a, um, maybe something where actors that would like to be approached could put a email that a separate email where you could reach them and then they could decide if they wanted to respond so they could get around some of that and then you could always refer them back to the agent mm -hmm. and say look somebody approached me about this film can you find out if it's SAG signatory can you find out if it's real if there really is funds for it and so on and so forth but the system the way it is now is designed to keep the independent filmmaker away from the talent. That's the way I, I well, see I'm it. Well, I'm always doing um, movies for for first-time directors and independent feature makers. So I, I have I can bring to the table a very different point of view. Uh, let's see how this works. Let's say I went to um, a festival in in Canada, in Toronto, and um, I got on stage and uh, this, and it was a wonderful evening, so forth and so on, and. There was a lad there who wanted to me to read a, a, a screenplay of his, and he knew the director of the place, the director of the entire festival, and he said, well, I, can I just email Karen? And he said, well, okay, and he, I think he just emailed me. I don't know if they even asked. Or he might, or Daniloff might have mentioned him to me. So that was a, just a connective. There was a connective link. It wasn't a big, outrageous, gatekeeper connective link. It was just a connective link. He... I thought it was a great festival. I loved that evening. Um, I trust Mr. Daniloff, or, or, but the point is that you know, um, if you can get someone to read your stuff and it's good, you'll do it. Uh, they'll do it. I think this is a wonderful part, and I, and I want to do his movie. But these are two examples of people that didn't know me or anything, and they somehow connected up with me. What you can do is you can go on IMDb and you can look at all the people that person knows and see if you know anyone they know. That's one thing you can do. Or you can think of events where they're going to be. Or I don't know. You can you can pretty much work it out. Um, Jonathan Coet, who did um, Tarnation, which was very brilliant, he got a standing ovation at Cannes. Anyhow, he, we got to be friends. Um, my friend Josh Miller and I put a, gave him a party. We didn't hadn't met him yet. Gave him this big party. Because um, we knew these other people were connected. So I met Jonathan, and he's a very, very warm-hearted person. He's a real sweetheart. What a darling guy. Anyhow, so recently he, uh, well, I guess a week ago, he emailed me, and he said he has a friend um, who would like to send me a script. And it's just a very good script. I'm looking so forward to doing it. It depends on the material, you know. You read the material and you see if you like it. There are so many ways of reaching actors. There really, really are. I, I say going through, a, going through a, an agency isn't the best way. And when we try to guess as to why they keep scripts from actors, probably a every guess is right. I mean, someone's going to be guilty of whatever guess you've got, so you might as well quit trying. I think also if you really want to get your script to somebody, you probably can. It's just... You have to decide who that is 
And is this the right part for them? And is this a script that they're going to be attracted to for whatever reason? You know, it might, you might think that this is the perfect part for somebody, but they might be sick of playing that part, you that's know? Right. And if you give them something that's going to stretch them or going to give them a challenge or something that they, uh, you know, they get something out of it, it's always all about you get something out of it, they get something out of it. If that, those two things happen together, maybe, you know, even the agent will get something out of it in the end. But really, if, if the performer and the person who is coming up with the project, they both get something out of it, you usually can make it happen, I think. That's a very good point. I think another thing that actors will get out of things uh, is if it's a cause there, you know, that they love, like animals or a better court system or something political, they'll they'll jump on that. You can get a lot of people if you really believe in it. I, the other point that I wanted to make about that is, you you can never think with one reach and no response that it's over. It's a, it's a strange phenomenon. It, it goes all across the board. Let me give you a silly example. Someone wanted to do Karen Black t-shirts once, long ago. Well, not oh, 2000 or something. Oh, what a great idea, I thought. But I was so busy. I think I was doing movies back to back. I couldn't remember. You know, it was emails like they're 50 below. You can't find them anymore. You don't remember the phone call. You can't find where you wrote it. It's impossible. You have to keep doing it. You have to keep doing it. People say, well, you're going to irritate the person. You're going to, you're going to f uh, bother the person. You should, don't think those thoughts. Don't think bother. Don't think irritate. Don't think it. I'm sorry. You can't think it because nobody can remember anything. You just, <laughs> you just have to say, okay, remember last uh, uh, fall I asked you about the T-shirts? Oh, yes, yes. Uh, now I got it. Yes, I'd love to do a T-shirt. But he never called. You know, he thought, well, she doesn't like it. She doesn't. She's snubbing me. <laughs> I just couldn't find the guy. Um, when we did, Lynn Hirschman Leeson did a movie that oh, she was nominated for a Spirit Award. She asked Tilda Swinton to do her movie. Now, what happened was she wanted Tilda Swinton, period. Tilda said no. She asked her again. She said no. She got me in the movie. Well, Karen Black will do it. I'll do it. So what happens often is you have to do it. If you had done, for example, your reach to this fellow who wrote in the bedroom seven times instead of twice, he might have gotten it. You can't just imagine things. You can't imagine that, what I've said, they're snubbing you, you're not important to them, all these things. You have to do it over and over again, and then it will work. You know, you can't just give up. Okay, so I, I think, uh, I mean, to, to paraphrase or to reiterate what Karen's saying is perseverance is critical in all aspects of this particular industry, probably in all aspects of life, but certainly in this industry. I, I don't want to use the word perseverance. Okay. I think it's too vague. I'm, I'm saying repetition. Oh, Okay. Repeated, repeated reach, a repeated reach. You do, you, you reach and then you reach again, then you reach again, then you reach again. You don't give up. Uh, it, it's not exactly perseverance. It's, it's just an action of delivering the communication again and again. That's all. Simple. I think you're right also about, well, it, what I get out of it too, is that sometimes people will reach out to somebody and for whatever reason the person wasn't ready to receive the communication or you didn't make it stick in some way. Mm -hmm. And so you have to do it again. But a lot of times what people do is they make up a whole story about why this person decided to snub them. 
exactly. because they didn't get their communication across or uh, uh, the person's like too important for them or this right. and that. And then they get in this whole story that they've created and then they, 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 that becomes the, the story. Yes, and the reason. And it isn't the reason. Very well said. I want to talk to you about, um, I, I just am really interested in filmmaking in the 70s, and you were a major part of that. Um, people, we talked to Peter Bogdanovich about movies in the 70s, and he pretty much told us that the, the great, the golden age of filmmaking was before the 70s, which was from 1914 to 1962, I think he, I think he said. Um, but a lot of us, uh, people my age, I guess, and younger, we look towards the 70s and go, there was some great filmmaking that went on then. Mm-hmm. And um, was, there, was the climate, what was the climate like, or what was it like to be involved in filmmaking at that time, and what is different about it than it is now? You know, I can only answer it from my point of view. Right. And that doesn't mean I have really much of an overview. I have only my view. I think that there was a nice match up in the 70s. You know, my kind of acting is sort of free in a way, and and it's kind of unselfconscious. And and there was a there was a value in that in the seventies. There was a value in real. There was a value in spontaneous. There was a great value in kind of telling it like it is, and a sort of a passion about that, and sort of a rhapsodic feeling about it. And, People were kind of, many people were dedicated to that. Um, there's a movie that embodies what I'm saying very well called Getting Straight. People were just so real. They were sweating, they were crying. I think the snot was coming out of their noses. Um, th- people started vomiting a little too much, I think, in movies. But I would say that that was um, a, a great passion of, of the times, and people were really the audiences loved it and they were they were um, on that path with everyone and I think the studios went oh my god what are they doing they're doing like really real oh my god they're improvising oh these people are really smoking grass in Easy Rider I think they really are smoking grass in Easy Rider well we better do something like that because they're making a lot of money we better try to imitate that so I think that that had a lot to do with it um and, you know, if you see Airport 75, I have these strange moments of opening my mouth too wide or sticking my tongue out or all kinds of spontaneous things. That um, it was just sort of like how it was then. Um, so that if you think of John Cassavetes and what he stood for and what, what his purposes were in his life and what kind of art he felt people should be witnessing and, and what, what needed to be communicated now, you understand the 70s, because that's what it was kind of all about. Because that concept and that value was very strong in those days, independent features began to win the day a lot, because we could do it. We could all do that. We were free to do it, and no no one knew knew enough to stop us. And um, the movies were very successful. But I think now... uh, it's very quiet. I guess it's coming back, you know. Children of Men is, a, is an incredibly free movie, an insanely uh, conceived movie, cinemat- cinematograph- 
feet-wise, and mm-hmm. I say that. Wasn't that a great movie? It's mind-blowing, that movie. Yeah, it's a, it, you know, that has a lot of passion. I think these things are going to come back. But, there, but there's also something now which is a little cold, um, but brilliant. If you look at um, In the Company of Men or some Todd Solon's movies, um, there is a way in which movies can be almost essayist. They're, they're, they're very intelligent and brilliantly maneuvered, but they're not exactly warm. They're not exactly warm-hearted. Even a movie like um, American Beauty, I sat down at the computer and, and reiterated the plot points for myself, and they were so perfect. They were perfect. And I thought, well, I, I sure don't want to write something like that because, you know, it's there are um, wonderful playwrights who are who are writing movies now but but when you write a play you hear words and the words have a certain resonance and and feeling and drama to them that they can't really quite have in a movie because a movie is visual um, and again if you're trying to bring life up to a word it'll work but it's a, a completely different kind of art it's just utterly different now you worked with alfred hitchcock on family plot from what i understand he would storyboard out the the movie so that he knew exactly what each shot was going to look look like and where the people were going to be and there wasn't from what i understand a lot of spontaneity is that true or was there a lot of spontaneity well i think that it should be appreciated about mr hitchcock that he did something that no one can do. No one should ever have been able to do. And no one does. Which is, yes, he storyboarded the movie. Yes, he shot the storyboard. But here's what's remarkable and utterly phenomenal. The movie worked. He didn't have to re-edit it. Mm. He didn't have to change a thing. He conceived it so perfectly that when he was done, he was really done. That's never been done. No one ever says it. Oh, he storyboarded. He didn't really care. That's not true. He cared enough at some point early on that he could imagine it well enough and completely enough, and with his with, with encompass the whole the whole of it enough that when he was done shooting just his little scribbles, he had a brilliant movie and he didn't have to change a thing. I don't think it's ever been done before. Yeah, I went to San Francisco, went into a church, and they shot my foot falling in one scene. That was the day, my foot. That was the that was the drawing. They were doing that day. He was, um, yes. He told me he was a little bit bored when when he was shooting the movie, and he was very playful, and he rather just like kid around. His he was like a big, big uh, tot. He was like a great big baby, very uh, very shrewd, very shrewd, and very demanding. And he, he would fire people if they weren't doing it right. He fired a few people in the first two months of the family plot and he said to me you are too nice in this in this part you need to be a little colder and it was frightening because because it, uh, it was like yeah and if I'm not I'm not going to be in this movie <laughs> you know? 
Um, and he he would play all these games with us. We play uh, we bring limericks in and tell each other limericks. And he was just very warm-hearted, a von killer guy, like like uncle-like. And he. Do you think he had that ability? I mean, obviously he was. A- fine, fine craftsman of movies, but do you think because he had such a preconceived idea of what the movie was going to be like, by the time he got to shooting, he was very free to be jovial and, and, and have a good time because he knew exactly how it was going to flow and had that much control? Well, I've never um, put together the, the um, perfection of his plans with his jovial mood. I would say that um, I would put it together with his being a little bit bored unless he was, was having a good time on the set. And he told me he wasn't. But he'd sit there and, you know, we'd, I'd say, I like his suit. And he'd say, yes, he has many of them made. And, and he'd be looking in his suit to try to find who the tailor was in England. And, and someone would come up to him and say, we're ready for you. We're waiting for you, Mr. Hitchcock. He'd say, oh, I thought I was waiting for you. And I'll get to work. And he was really wonderful. I'm also really fascinated about the role that you played in Nashville, the way you sang and you were a country singer. and, and um, You have such a cool you voice. You have such a wonderful voice. That's my low voice. I don't like it. Well, there's also a band apparently named after you. Do you know about this band? Well, now, which question do you want me to answer? Uh, well, no, I'm just kind of uh, now just going off in Let's my own direction right completely. <laughs> 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 Let's talk about Nashville because I want to talk about that. Because I think that um, Robert Altman... Um, my I thought about Robert Altman in that movie is that he kind of made a fabric of all these different characters, and you I, I, you get a chance to see this whole like world, and sometimes I feel like it's not like as plot driven as I, as a, as other movies like movies that I that I see today, like you were saying about American Beauty, that it's like very much hits certain points along mm-hmm. the way mm-hmm. whereas with Nashville I felt like I was just experiencing a world and it does have a plot and at the end of the movie you've kind of realized everything's been kind of moving towards this one event um, but it's a different style of filmmaking I think and absolutely completely and totally different and what is that like to work on a movie like that what was that like well he he um, you know when we did um, Nashville I had a I had a microphone on my thigh, I think it was, inner thigh, and I didn't remember that I was bit miked. I mean, I just couldn't keep it in mind. It's not a scene that starts here, it's when you say this, and then it, you cut. There's nothing to do with that. I didn't know where the cameras were. When I was getting ready to go on stage and sing as Connie White, I didn't know anyone was shooting me. I was just sort of being Connie White and so forth. What I said on the stage, a little boy uh, becoming a president, I just totally made it up at the moment. When Julie Christie came to see me and uh, and and uh, and I laughed about she can't comb her hair, I made that up at the moment. I, nobody told me to make that up. And the whole the whole crew was going, when <coughs> they were cutting and then they all started laughing. So it's very very free. It's a completely different way, a completely different concept of what it, what uh, what what's there to be communicated and why you make a movie and what it's all about. Completely different. He had um, I don't know twenty three lines going into his recording system, so that, you know, no matter who was speaking in one room and the other, you got it all. People interrupted each other, you got everything. And he loves that. I mean, he loves, loved, but I probably still loves um, the great, insane 
you know, circus of mankind. He just loves it. And you just have this feeling he throws it all up in the air and loves where it's going to land and, and lets it land there. And, and, and you know, he'll, he'll work it out later. What, he wanted to do another one called Nashville Red, but he had some kind of stinko um, producer connected with it, where he went to the other room. And the other people that were in that room that were not in this room, you had their stories and so forth. Mm. He's just He was just a great genius, wonderful genius. And when we did the play, you know, uh, come back the five and dime, Jimmy Dean, Jimmy Dean. I would say that he didn't quite fashion a play so that the attention went where he wanted the attention to go on stage, um, which is kind of something you have to do as a director of a play. Um, but certainly when we did the movie, we had the same kind of freedom, although we had the lines. But he had two cameras going all the time, and, uh, you know, his... Ivan Passer is like this as well. He's a Czechoslovakian director. And what what like this means is have the actors do what they do and then have the camera find them there. Don't have the the actors perform for the camera. Like, have a camera, you, you know, and then they have to do certain things and the camera will see it a certain way. It's very, it's very, it was very free. Then, you know, we could kind of be upset and cry and and go and kneel and fuss and go into corners and do whatever we did and he'd find a way of of having the camera find us there. Yeah, he's uh he's much missed. I think that that he made everybody okay. You know, it's like all the people making independent features now they go. I'm okay cuz he did it and he did it well and he was right so I can be right. So that was a tremendous support system. I don't think he was even aware he was delivering uh, sort of like a base for all the independent feature makers in America. I think he had a base and a support system there for them, which kind of been pulled away now a little bit. Mm. It's pretty sad. And about um, the voluptuous horror of Karen Black, um, you know, I went and I saw their show, and I met her, Kendra, um, lovely people, blah, 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 going to Alaska, going to Alaska. <laughs> <laughs> That's but, the music is like that? Something. But then what I what was hard for me was they took over my sights, you know what I mean? You, you, they yeah. didn't have Karen Black, the voluptuous horror of, they had Karen Black. So anyone pretty much for many years going to find Karen Black, oh. I oh. couldn't have KarenBlack.com, KarenBlack.net, you couldn't find me. And, and it didn't disturb me nearly so much as it, it disturbed my husband because he was like, you know, you, you kind of fail to communicate. So it was a failure to communicate for a long time. Did you talk to them about get them giving it to you? No, um, I never did. I mean, what do I say? I don't know what... Just say, can I please have my sight back, and I would really appreciate it, and I'm sure they'll give it to you. Oh, I guess it didn't cross my mind. See how I am? I give advice I can't take. They're not a band anymore. So it, it kind of went away. So we got it back that way. And it has been quite different now. But people can reach me more easily and see, see all kinds of things of mine. Nice. Now, Karen, you are such a gentle, loving person. How do you know? Um, just because last I've night, sat last with night's making some time and the, the weeks we've spent together. Um, no, but you are you're also very much associated with horror films because you've done quite a few horror films. Uh, I remember... Fourteen. I have 167. I will oh, never that's not, not that, that many. many. Well, 
That's more than and I've fact, done. And in fact, some of them, some of them are called horror movies that are actually science fiction movies. Like Dan Curtis is not at all a horror shoot. Burned Offerings and um, Trilogy of Terror not horrors at all, not at all, because they're they're science fiction. There, a little man comes to life. That's science fiction. Mm-hmm. A house has come to life. That's science fiction. Utterly science fiction. It's not horror at all. Horror really is a different genre. What about House of a Thousand Corpses? That's horror. <laughs> so how do you find yourself in the horror slash sci-fi genre? Um, I, I'm per, I personally think that you're so emotionally available that a lot of times these kind of stories, you're a great person to tell them because you are so exposed as a person mm-hmm. that when you put you in a, in, a, in a fictitious situation where there's danger, mm-hmm. you, I feel with you. And so I get scared too. When there's a little doll chasing around with a knife, I get scared. And uh, that's yes, still a wonderful scared. theory. That's my theory. That's a really nice theory. I've never heard it, and I really like it. Thank you. Why, thank you. Um, do you do you agree with I that? I say it's just a mistake. Yeah. I say it was a fairly major mistake in my life. <gasps> really? Oh yeah. Totally. Another mistake might be I'll never know, and I'm and I'm not sure at all. Is I probably shouldn't have come to this coast. Because I had started to do Broadway, and I was doing you know Broadway shows, and and then Henry Jaglum, who was a friend even then, in the mid '60s, I was playing a 15-year-old on Broadway, um, sent along an, an agent, Kevin Castleman, and I flew out here, and he he took me to a wonderful restaurant and gave me <laughs> pieces of paper, and when I was 17, I signed them all, and blah blah. Anyhow. Yeah, because really my work is, you know, what my work is. And it, it's not really a, sort of like commercial or something. It's not exactly like that. So what happened was there I was. Um, I don't know. It's kind of like living my life. And someone had offered me... Um, a television movie, which was really good, and I should have done that. Um, and then I got offered Trilogy and Terror. And I had a manager who wasn't really in the in the Hollywood community at all. He was like this guru guy, very, very wonderful guy. And he just really liked me to do all these things. He came and he sat in the middle of my living room till four in the morning. Said, you should do this Trilogy of Terror. And I said, um... Well, if my present husband plays that part, and of course I love playing that spinster lady because I'll never get to do a spinster again for 20, 30 years. Okay, I'll do it. So then somehow my work got derailed. It's really derailing. Truly, it's derailed. Because then I was doing, then I did burnt offerings, and then people were like, I think might because my name is black or... Maybe the horror of Karen Black. There's some connection thing happened, um, and it, and it's really uh, my responsibility because I had never decided, nor have I ever, even to this instant, decided who is Karen Black. I've never just made up my mind. You know, am I a comic? Am I a tragedian? Um, do I do Shakespeare? Uh, do I do studio movies? Do I do independent features? Do, what do I do? Who is she? And um, all I can say is I just love to act, and that's who I am. 
but the whole thing of uh, horror is a derailing to me because um, it, it, I, I don't watch them. I don't read them. You know, I read Tess of the D'Urbervilles. This is, this is, I love this language and I'm, I like characters in Broadway and things like that. And so it's, it's just gone awry. <laughs> um, we're at the, the, the film bites section. Okay. Well, um, here's an odd one. As an actor, outflow equals inflow. This is going to sound peculiar. Let's say you're an actor and you're sitting there and you want a job. Get on the phone, get on the internet, and communicate with about two or three hundred people. Do not stop. I don't care if it's your aunt in Nebraska. I don't care who it is. Just communicate. And somehow, you will get a job. I'm telling you, you will get a job. It's after 85 communications out or after 130. It's weird, but it's magic. It's almost as if you've you know, you've permeated the, the, the super atmosphere or structure of the, of the sky, or I don't know what the hell it is. But I'm telling you, it works. It will work. Communicate with anybody on anybody. any Anybody. And then they'll make you think of people. And what will happen as well is you'll go, you know, but I'm mad at that person. And then you'll go, hey, screw it. I'm not mad at anybody. I like everybody. What am I doing being mad at this person? I'm calling them up. And you'll find that your the flows that you have toward others are so extended and so uh, uh, loving and sweeping that people just somehow get it, and they come back to you, and they'll come back. Someone will come back. They'll come back. It'll come back. <laughs> That's true. The um, the thing that I'm thinking about for a film bite, which is from what Karen said. <laughs> That was the film bite? No, that was a great one. Okay. That's yours. Now I'm going to say one just because I thought of one uh, from what you've been saying. Okay. Um, When you set out to do anything, uh, whether it be uh, an acting career or whether it be make a movie, flesh out what that looks like to you in as detailed a way as possible so that you can go towards it. Uh, You were talking about how, you know, maybe you, you didn't know who Karen Black was. Uh-huh. And, or you also talked about how Alfred Hitchcock had fleshed out the, the idea of his movie so much mm-hmm. that he could see the whole movie. Mm-hmm. And so then when he got to it, my interpretation is he was free because he knew what it was going to look like mm-hmm. already. Mm-hmm. So I think the more that you do that, and also we talked about getting a hold of actors no, to wait, be in I your want movie. You to, I want you to be more specific with this last okay one you've said mm-hmm. when you say permeate or say it say it give them- okay so you had said that um the thing about the horror movies that maybe it was a mistake uh-huh. because possibly you you didn't define what you wanted to be as an actress and then when somebody came along and said hey do trilogy of terror or do the, these horror movies you didn't know enough to say oh that's not what i'm doing good is i'm doing this good and then also, if like we were saying, if you're trying to get like that perfect actor for your project, mm-hmm. a lot of times people just go, oh, I want to get some A-list actor or something like that. No, who is right for your project? Mm-hmm. And if you get more specific about who is the perfect person for this project, you probably will get to that person. And then they will probably go, hey, this is something that's good for me. Excellent. 
And also what I want to just reiterate from my film bite, what Karen said about the distinction between perseverance and repetition and to continue to reach and not to assume that because you're not being responded to that you're that you that the person actually even received what you were trying to tell them just assume they didn't hear it they didn't get it and do it again Mm -hmm. because you have to respect you know your own communication and your own purposes that's that's what makes life life is is human beings have purposes and they and that's what makes life great so you have to respect that and just keep repeating your communication until it gets responded to that's great so we're going to end it here thank you so much thank for you, inviting us over here and allowing us to share this time with you it's been very eye-opening for me and thank you for um getting me to clarify my film bite well it's been my pleasure and you two are absolutely wonderful guys just wonderful guys 